This morning's sermon comes from Genesis 2, 18 through 25. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and the beasts of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Larry King, the famous television and radio host, was interviewed by Esquire magazine about his marriages. He had had uh, eight marriages and eight divorces and uh, with seven different women. So his fifth marriage, he remarried his third wife. So he was asked about these marriages and these divorces and kind of getting his views on things. And he said this in the interview. The three greatest words in the English language are not, I love you. That's second. The first are, leave me alone. Now, I think that tells a little bit of the story of his life um, and probably not strategy for uh, any premarital counseling that I would be doing, uh, but it reflects the difficulty of marriage. It reflects, uh, in some cases, the um, throwing away of marriage. I'll, I'll read you another quote. This is from an article in New York Magazine uh, that was titled, Is Marriage Obsolete? The author said this, isn't it reasonable to question the value of a legal contract written in ink on paper that involves disastrously punitive forms of dissolution, particularly when it's paired with an enormously expensive ceremony that often includes allusions to obedience and lifelong mutual suffering and death of all things. And there are a host of inconveniences to being married, along with untold drudgery, monotony, frustration, and reg regret. Considering all that, what could possibly be the point of this outdated charade? So here we go. We're going to talk about marriage. Uh, that is pretty accurate, generally speaking, to how our culture views marriage, but even individually, how we view marriage. In July of 1961, the Green Bay Packers came to the first training camp day. The year before, they had uh, lost a lead in the championship game and had barely lost in the NFL championship game. So they arrive at their first day of training camp in 1961, and Vince Lombardi, the legendary coach, stands before them. They're expecting to hear all these great plans of how to advance their skills to the next level so this year they can win the championship. And he stands before them 
with a pigskin in his right hand, and he says, gentlemen, this is a football. And he's renowned for that speech. His players were shocked, but he went back to the basics. He went back to the beginning. He went back to the fundamentals. Today, we're going back to the beginning. We're going back to the basics about marriage. And we're gonna go back to the first marriage in history to learn about marriage and what exactly it is. So what is marriage? First, it's a partnership. It's a partnership, and it's a partnership in two ways. First, it's a partnership that wars against loneliness. Look at verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. What do we learn there? We learn that you are not designed to live in isolation. And the reason for that is because you are created in the image of a God who does not live in isolation. In fact, one chapter earlier in Genesis 1, we see the Trinity. When God says, let us make man in our image, God is speaking of one God, three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The sense of community, the sense of relationship, that is hardwired into our world, into our very being, that we are wired for community and not isolation. If God were just one, that wouldn't be the case. If God were dual, there'd be love. But because God is triune, three persons, community is the highest form of life in the universe, that we are wired for it. Adam was not to be alone because Adam was not created to be alone. That marriage is a partnership that wars against loneliness. Now, this, this intimacy in marriage that wars against loneliness let me say it this way. Some of you that maybe you're single, some of you that are maybe divorced and you have a longing to be married may look at married couples and think because they live in the same house, because they are physically living together, that means that they're not lonely. But let me assure you that some of the deepest loneliness can happen in a marriage. Some of you that are married are in a place of deep loneliness. And that's because intimacy in marriage is, is three parts. There's, there's physical, spiritual, and emotional intimacy. And if you think about those three types of intimacy comprising a three-legged stool, you can see how important they are to each other because you know with a three-legged stool, if you take one of the legs off, what happens? Right? It collapses. Physical, spiritual, emotional intimacy, they feed off each other, they feed each other. 
And so if your emotional intimacy is lacking in marriage, then probably your physical intimacy is lacking as well. Or if your spiritual intimacy is lacking in marriage, then probably your emotional intimacy is lacking. They, they feed each other. And the only way to fight this, the only way to fight for intimacy is to communicate. Not just a one-time communication, but continual communication in marriage. Let me encourage husbands to ask your wives this, and I, and I realize this, these are questions that are vulnerable questions, but I'd encourage you to ask these questions to your wives. How do you feel lonely in our marriage? How do you feel lonely in our marriage? What do I do or what do I not do that feeds or contributes to your loneliness? And when you ask those questions and your wife replies, don't get defensive. And don't try to justify your actions because what that does is dismisses her and even drives her into deeper loneliness. And I would say, wives, flip it around, ask your husbands the same thing. And I guarantee that if you have a humble conversation about that, your eyes will be opened and greater emotional intimacy will begin just, just to talk about the topic. Because marriage is a partnership that wars against loneliness because God hates loneliness. He's a God who exists in community. Second, marriage is a partnership that embraces help. It embraces help. Look at verse 18 again. It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now, this phrase, helper fit for him, has two parts. Let's start with the word helper. What does that mean? What does the word helper mean? What does it not mean? Some who interpret this word helper, predominantly males that make this interpretation, would say that helper is a close synonym of servant, which means that the woman's job is to help the man achieve his goals. Now, others uh, would interpret it, predominantly female, to assert that helper uh, means superiority over the man who is too weak to handle life on his own. Now, both of those definitions of helper are wrong. The word helper appears in the rest of the Bible to predominantly speak of God. Specifically of God as a warrior who is committed to his people. That when this same word is used of God, it is used to describe his heart to protect and to sustain life. Let me give you an example of this in Deuteronomy 33, 29. Blessed are you, Israel. Who is like you, a people saved by the Lord? He is your shield and helper. There it is. And helper in your glorious sword. Your enemies will cower before you and you will tread on their heights. There is nothing that suggests a subservient status 
of the one who is helping. In fact, when you think about the way that God creates Eve, the manner in which God creates the woman, it even affirms this. Look at verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. Why did God create the woman out of the side of the man? Matthew Henry gives a, a great insight into this. He says, Eve was not made out of his head to top him, not out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, equal in dignity. Differing roles, equal in dignity, right? The woman is uniquely designed to be a warrior of relationship, a guardian of truth in relationship. She is uniquely designed to reflect God's heart for relationship and hatred of isolation. So we see this word helper meaning warrior, right? Warrior, not subservient, but a warrior. Helper fit for him. So what's the second half of that phrase mean? Fit for him. It gets translated in a number of ways. It gets translated corresponding to. Uh, it gets translated fit for or suitable. Bottom line, any way you translate it, what it's getting at is this idea of complementary. Complementary. That husband and wife need each other. That they complete one another. The way that we're to understand this phrase is like two puzzle pieces, like a jigsaw puzzle, right? Two pieces that actually fit perfectly together. Now, let me just run with this imagery of a puzzle for a second. Which of the following better describes your marriage? One image would be two complete puzzles sitting side by side, right? So both puzzles are complete, but they sit side by side. Let me give you another image. One puzzle divided down the middle that is being pushed together where all the pieces fit together. Now, do you see the difference? Two puzzles completely together are all finished side by side. That that describes a marriage of functional coexistence. That describes a marriage where each person is complete in themselves. That spouses don't really need each other. They're not completed by one another. They're just complete in themselves. And maybe there's some add-on things that help in the relationship, but functionally, they're coexistent. The other image of the puzzle divided down the middle that's being pushed together where the pieces fit, that describes a marriage not of functional coexistence, but a marriage of mutual dependence, where husband and wife need each other, where husband and wife complete each other, where it's complementary. I'll give you an example of this. I need, my wife Kim, I need her mercy. She has a, an incredible incredible heart of mercy gifted in that way. An area where I'm lacking, if I'm honest. I need her mercy. 
She compliments me in that area. Here are a few questions to ask each other. Do you feel needed by me? Do you feel needed by me? How do we complement each other? Marriage is a partnership. Partnership that wars against loneliness. It's a partnership that embraces help. Second, marriage is a bond. It's a bond. And again, we're going to see here, it's a bond in two ways. First, it's a bond of exclusivity. Look at verse 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. This is a a verse that gets kind of shortened into that phrase, leave and cleave. Right? Leave and cleave. What exactly does that mean? It means that the bond of marriage has priority over the bond of every other relationship. Starting with, directly in verse 24 here, the bond with mother and father, the parental bond. What this is saying is that when you get married, your relationship with your parents changes. There's a fundamental change that happens. Practically speaking, let me give you a few practicalities here, what this means. Practically, it means that when push comes to shove, that you're willing to disappoint your parents before you're willing to disappoint your spouse, that you cherish and that you honor and protect. It means that when you get married, that when you go home for the holidays, it looks different. You don't go home as a single person anymore, which means that the way that you interact at home and holidays with your parents or even brothers and sisters looks different. Because now you're married and that bond of marriage has priority over all other relationships, whether mom, dad, brother, sister. Let me give you a few other relationships. The bond of marriage has priority over the bond of friendship or friendships. So when you get married, your relationship to your friends changes. It changes. The last minute, late night, spontaneous, hanging out with buddies or girlfriends, changes. And it should. That's a good thing. Let me give you one final example. The bond of marriage has priority over the bond of or the bond with children. Now, that that may raise a few eyebrows. Let me explain this. The greatest gift, one of the greatest gifts that you can give to your children is a marriage in which your children see hear, and understand that mommy and daddy's relationship is a priority. And that means that mommy and daddy, they would go on a date night even when we were just pleading with them to stay home and play with us. Or or, uh, mommy and daddy would not not let us uh, interrupt their conversation in the den when they were having conversation. They would tell us to go play, go find something to do. Mommy and daddy are having a conversation right now. Right? That's, the, that's one of the greatest gifts you can give to your kids is a marriage in which your kids know that your relationship 
is an absolute priority. So marriage is a bond. It's a bond of exclusivity. Does your marriage or the bond of your marriage take priority over the bond of your other relationships? Now, you may say, I don't know. I don't know. Let me give you a diagnostic question to ask then. When push comes to shove, who are you willing to offend or disappoint? When push comes to shove, you can't please everyone. That's just a reality in relationships and communities. But when push comes to shove, who are you willing to disappoint? Who are you willing to offend? That's going to start to, to help you understand where is the priority? What's the priority bond in my relationships? Is it my marriage or is it something else? Who is the first priority when it comes to defending and protecting? Marriage is a bond of exclusivity. Second, marriage is a bond of oneness. It's a bond of oneness. Look again at verse 24. And they shall become one flesh. One flesh. What does that mean? Well, Paul, the apostle, gives commentary on this verse in Ephesians 5. Starting in verse 28, he says this. In the same way, speaking of how Christ loves the church, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. And then Paul goes on to quote Genesis 2. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. You and I have no problem loving ourselves, and that's just not a problem. You don't have to be trained growing up to love yourself. Let me teach you how to love yourself. Now, I understand there's a rabbit trail here on we don't always know how to love ourselves, but you do, there's a healthy sense of loving yourself, but generally speaking, we don't have to be taught how to love ourselves. We know, we we take care of our bodies. We feed it. Uh, We give it rest. We give our bodies exercise, most of us. Uh, we, we take our bodies to the doctor. Right? What Paul's saying is the one flesh means that what, what you do as a single person, loving yourself when you get married and you're one flesh, you begin to take care of your spouse that way as you take care of yourself because you are one flesh. Think back to the jigsaw puzzle analogy. You literally are two pieces that have been fit together into one flesh. And so you care for one another in that way. You're not two people coexisting. You're one flesh. Richard Seltzer in his book, Mortal Lessons, Notes on the Art of Surgery, describes this scene from his operating room. I stand by the bed where a young woman lies, her face post-operative, her mouth twisted in palsy, clownish. A tiny twig of the facial nerve, the one to the muscles of her mouth, has been severed. She will be thus from now on, 
The surgeon had followed with religious fervor the curve of her flesh. I promise you that. Nevertheless, to remove the tumor in her cheek, I had to cut the little nerve. Her young husband is in the room. He stands on the opposite side of the bed, and together they seem to dwell in the evening lamplight, isolated from me, private. Who are they, I ask myself, he and this wry mouth I have made, who gaze at and touch each other so generously. The young woman speaks. Will my mouth always be like this? She asks. Yes, I say, it will. It is because the nerve was cut. She nods and is silent. But the young man smiles. I like it, he says. It's kind of cute. Unmindful, he bends to kiss her crooked mouth. And I am so close, I can see how he twists his own lips to accommodate to hers, to show her that their kiss still works. Oneness. When your spouse is suffering, you are suffering. When your spouse is sick, you are sick. When your spouse is anxious and fearful, you are anxious and you are fearful. When your spouse is struggling with sin or struggling with idolatry, you are struggling with sin. You are struggling with idolatry. Oneness. Oneness means twisting. It means sacrificing. To love your spouse because you're one flesh. What is marriage? It's a partnership. It's a partnership that wars against loneliness. It's a partnership that embraces help. It's a bond. It's a bond of exclusivity that the bond of marriage has priority over all other bonds. It's a bond of oneness. Now, I've just given you some good principles for marriage. But the final truth about what marriage is is a truth that without it, these first two principles, partnership and bond, are absolutely rootless. Like when you cut a flower and put it in a vase of water. It looks beautiful, and it looks beautiful for a while, but after some time, it withers and dies. Without this final truth, the other truths will wither and die. The final truth of what marriage is is that it's a shadow. And it's this truth, that marriage is a shadow, that will, as a root, feed and nourish these other truths, that it's a partnership and a bond. So what do we mean when we say marriage is a shadow? Look at verse 21 again. So the Lord God took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. 
the language here indicates that God reached in, so to speak, and grabbed a handful of flesh and bone out of the man's side to make the woman. That the woman was birthed out of the side of Adam, the bridegroom. That out of Adam, the bridegroom's side, was birthed the woman. Now, when Jesus Christ was hanging on the cross at his crucifixion, we read in John 19, 34, but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. Jesus' bride, the church, was birthed out of his side, was birthed out of his side in great sacrifice. The ultimate bridegroom is Jesus Christ, who has said that if you trust him, he has wed himself to you, and that he is coming back to rescue you and to eat and feast with you in this wedding reception, this marriage supper, at the end of time when he returns. It's very striking that the Bible begins with a wedding and it ends with a wedding. The first bridegroom, Adam, made a mess of things. And because of his sins, spun humanity into darkness and rebellion. The second bridegroom, the second Adam, Jesus Christ, will not fail, has not failed, but will faithfully rescue his bride, the church, of which you're a part of if you have put your faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus says in Matthew 22, 30, for in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage. Jesus says in heaven, in the new heavens and the new earth, there will be no marriage as we know it today. There will be no horizontal marriage. That marriage as we know it today is temporary, that it's a shadow. And you all know how a shadow works, right? A shadow is cast by an object or a person. A shadow is cast by an object or a person. Think about growing up. You remember playing hide-and-seek? Remember playing hide-and-seek with mom and dad or with friends? You know, when I, at least I've learned that when you play hide-and-seek with very young children, they want to be found, right? You count to 10, you say, ready or not, here I come. And you take about two steps, and voila, out pops the young toddler to say, here I am. They want to be found. But I want you to imagine, take yourself back to your childhood. Imagine you're playing hide and seek with your parents. And you go find your hiding spot. And dad counts up to 10. He says, ready or not, here I come. And you're in your hiding spot really quiet. And then, and then you start to see dad's shadow pass in front of your hiding spot. You know, when that happens, what, what happens to your heart? Right? You kinda, your heart leaps. 
You get excited. That means that dad's shadow's coming. That means dad's coming. He's going to appear. He's going to find me. And then sure enough, right, dad comes and he finds you. Imagine if dad never appeared. If it, it just was a shadow. You saw a shadow. You started to get excited. And it was a shadow. He never appeared. You, you would be sad. You'd be disappointed. The ultimate bridegroom, Jesus Christ, casts his shadow of marriage. And if you're married, you are participating in the shadow. But the substance behind the shadow is coming. And as joyful of an experience as marriage is, in the shadow of marriage, you know very well that the shadow of marriage is also very difficult. It's hard. And as much joy as there is in marriage, and it's good and God created it, it doesn't compare to the joy of the experience of the substance of the shadow, which is the bridegroom, Jesus Christ. Now, why is this important? Why is it so critical that you understand that marriage is a temporary shadow of which the substance, Jesus Christ, the bridegroom, is coming to rescue his bride, the church, of which you're a part of if you've put your faith in Christ? Well, let me speak to two things. Number one, if you are single and you are divorced, and you are longing for marriage. That is a good longing. God created that longing. But when you understand that marriage is just a shadow and that the substance is Christ the bridegroom, then you understand that marriage isn't the end-all, be-all. For those of you that are married, when you understand this last truth that marriage is a shadow, it keeps you from placing unrealistic expectations on the marriage. Because the reality is, is that the partnership that is supposed to war against loneliness sometimes fails in that. And some of you maybe are experiencing that right now where you're lonely in marriage. Or the partnership that embraces help doesn't always embrace help. Sometimes you don't feel needed in marriage. You feel dismissed. Right? Or the bond of exclusivity that is to put marriage of higher priority above any other relationship, sometimes that doesn't happen. Sometimes there are other relationships that take priority over your marriage, and it's hurtful. Right? Or, the, or the bond of oneness, sometimes you don't feel that. You feel very much coexistent. And in those moments, Jesus reminds you that he is the ultimate bridegroom. And that he is the one that you will be united to, married to, one with for eternity. He reminds you that Genesis 3 must have been crushing for Jesus. To see humanity ripped apart from its creator by sin. I am sure that crushed Jesus. Jesus reminds you that at the crucifixion, as he approached it, as awful and painful as it was, as Hebrews tells us, that he approached it with joy. 
Jesus reminds you in Luke 22 when he's having the Passover with his disciples and he says that I will not drink this cup until the kingdom comes. And he reminds you that he's waiting to drink the cup with you and with the ransom church of every nation and tribe when he returns. He reminds you of that. It gives you strength. In the midst of your marriage, if you're struggling, in the midst of singleness or your desire to be married, it keeps the focus in the right place. God is preparing a bride for his son, Jesus called the church. Your longing for marriage is just a glimpse of Jesus longing for you. The bride, the church. Let's pray. Father, thank you for creating marriage. It's a beautiful picture of ultimately what we will experience for eternity yet in perfection in relationship with you. And yet we confess that marriage is hard. The shadow of marriage here on earth is difficult. It's painful. And for those that aren't married, it's something to long for and it's painful to not get it. Oh, Father, would you of the marriages in this room that are struggling, would you bring healing? And would you bring healing through this last truth that it's a shadow? That you would draw husband and wife to yourself and humility repenting before you, Jesus, and in that finding reconciliation. And Father, for those that aren't married but want to be, would you be the bridegroom that you promised to be, not just now, but for eternity? Would they find grace? Would they find purpose? Would they find joy in you, Christ? Father, we do long for that day when your son Jesus will return and we will feast at the wedding reception, the marriage supper, and thank you for this meal of the Lord's Supper that gives us a taste of what is coming. We pray this all in Christ's name, amen.